welcome to the other side of midnight. I'm your host tonight, uh, Keith Morgan. I usually do the audio engineering. But tonight, uh, Richie's is having uh, electrical problems. So I am sitting in for Richard. Welcome to the other side of midnight. We're going to be talking about uh, a great subject tonight. We're going to be talking about anti-gravity. That's one of my favorite subjects because now with the, the military coming out with uh, UAPs, the new version of UFOs, just their version, so they can disassociate it with it. Um, the anti-gravity has a lot of stuff that will give us the ability to do things that uh, we didn't think uh, was possible because anti-gravity is uh, one of those, that's impossible. This doesn't fit the physics. The science doesn't match, but it does. And we are just now starting to discover that, even though my opinion is these guys have had anti-gravity since the 1950s after the Roswell crash. And they've been playing with it because Ben Rich said, now we have the ability to travel amongst the stars. We could take E.T. home tomorrow. He said, uh, if you've seen it on Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there, done that, but we found it wasn't practical. And he said that uh, we've got stuff that would make George Lucas drool. And then he said, well, these things are all locked up in black projects so tightly that it would take an act of God to get them released. So here we go with someone telling us who worked for Lockheed Skunk Works, the guys who gave us the U-2, the guys who gave us the SR-71 Blackbird, the guys who gave us the F-117 Stealth Fighter, the B-1 Stealth Bomber, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's telling us we have technologies that are well beyond man's capabilities. So now we're still groping for stuff, and we're finally putting all the pieces together and we still have are flying into space on flames. We've been burning stuff since caveman days. It's time to get off of that mess. It's time to move forward and move into the 21st century with our eyes wide open. So our guest tonight is going to be Mark Sokol. And... He's, uh, he's been working on anti-gravity. I'm not going to keep him off any longer because I want to hear what he has to say. But we had a nice conversation before the show, but we're going to be talking about anti-gravity. <laughs> Here's Mark. Hi, Mark. How are you? Um, I'm doing okay. It's uh, just, just past midnight here on the East Coast, and we're getting hammered by Hurricane Henry's outer uh, bands. And I'm, I'm here in the lab in Hawthorne, New Jersey, and uh, we're ready to talk about anti-gravity. Like, where do you want me to start? Well, give me a history of who... The beginning? Ma- yeah, tell me who Mark is. Tell me how Mark got into this whole thing and how he... What excited him to say, let me look at something that most people think is impossible. Um, okay, so that, that really started with my childhood. I grew up in a very religious uh, family, uh, religion being Judaism, in Lakewood, New Jersey. My Hebrew name is Yisrael Meir, which means to enlighten the Jews, and Meir in 
English is Mark. That's where the Mark Sokol comes from. Um, and I went to a very uh, religious school, the Lakewood Cheder, which uh, translated the uh, Torah into Yiddish. It was a very um, ultra-Orthodox upbringing. Then at the age 13, um, my dad was uh, in Israel for a short while learning there, and he w came back. On the way back, his flight turned around and uh, flew back to Israel. I said the, uh, uh, air, the airspace of America was closed. It was uh, September 11th, if you remember that date, 2001. I was 13 at the time, and uh, two weeks later, uh, we, a family of 11 picked up and moved to Israel. My dad took that as a sign that we have to move. We moved to the old city of Jerusalem where I lived for seven years and continued my studies of the Torah, the, the Hebrew Bible in its original Hebrew form. And so I really saw Judaism from both angles, both from the ultra-Orthodox center of Judaism in America, which is uh, Lakewood, New Jersey, and from the center of Judaism worldwide, which is the old city of Jerusalem. And it was only after contemplating everything and like really going deep in on the Torah that I, I came to the realization that the only thing that could explain the Torah was aliens. Like the ancient astronaut theory that aliens came down with their advanced technology and were manipulating man, splitting of the sea, had to have been some anti-gravity uh, technology. Um, by that time, I was already married with a kid, and I started having these conversations in the synagogue with people. Um, some of them were interested. Some of them thought I was crazy. Um, and some of them challenged me back saying, you know, if the technology exists, figure it out. You know, let me see the technology. And um, I took that challenge to heart and started investigating it, trying to figure out what was going on. Um, in uh, the end of 2016, or it was like early 2017, I was at a program called Landmark, Landmark Education. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, they basically go into like how the mind works and challenge people to make, uh, make themselves better. And at the end of the program, the advanced course, they asked everyone to get up on stage and make a declaration of something they're going to do. And I got up there and said, I'm going to figure out how warp drives work. And uh, the instructor, like even she couldn't, contain herself and started laughing but uh sure enough i started this whatsapp group right then and there and there was some people that came over to me that were kind of interested one guy worked for nasa at some point and i put them all in this whatsapp group and just started discussing the topic looking at different effects different claims that were made yada yada and eventually you know more and more people got involved and i started reaching out to people on youtube like uh there's a famous YouTube channel called Alien Scientist. Uh, Jeremy Reese runs that channel. Um, I eventually met up with him. Um, I started running experiments uh, first out of my garage, and then we moved that eventually to the shop. And uh, I, I really just opened up the book. You know, for starting with the the easy, the the uh, low lying fruit of these experiments um, to figure out. You know, there's a claim that's been made. Uh, by T. Townsend Brown, the gravitator experiment, we call it, where you have parallel plate capacitors, you're charging it up, and there's supposed to be this anti-gravity effect. Let's try that. You know, there's, um, uh, there's the Lloyd Bushman effect. Yeah, that was the gravitator. Yeah. Uh, Electrogravitic lifters that people are playing with, like rocket, mole uh, rocket mod uh, model rocketry today. So, yeah, I'm sorry. 
the the electrogravitic thing is is really it should have been something that people should have been paying attention to. Um, the MythBuster did a thing about it. They built a lifter, and Grant Emma Hare couldn't get it to work, so he called the guy that he bought the kit from. He talked him through, and when it lifted up, he was falling off his chair. They said, oh, it's putting out a, a one-mile-an-hour ion wind, and that must be what's lifting it. So they built a vacuum chamber out of plexi, clear plexi, and they put it in there, and they turned it on and said, see, it's not lifting in a vacuum because it's that one-mile-an-hour ion wind. And you could see on the dowel rod in the front, they were burning the dowel rod because they got grease from their fingers on the dowel rod. So the high voltage was running down the dowel rod, burning the dowel rod, and it was glowing embers. And Anyway, that technology does work. It works in a vacuum. And he, T. Townsend Brown proved um. that back then. So I'm sorry. Go ahead and. I'm not, I'm not so sure. If, I'm not so sure about working in a vacuum. We've never seen it work in a vacuum. Uh, one thing I could tell you about vacuums that I've learned uh, only through experimentation is that um, as you get closer to a full vacuum, there's a point where the uh, atmosphere inside the vacuum actually becomes more conductive. So. Uh, until you pull that really strong vacuum, you're not actually looking at what the craft would operate like in space. Um, ion craft do work. They work off of uh, the process called um, thermohydrodynamics, uh, I mean, uh, electrohydrodynamics, which is high voltage, um, creates this ion wind effect where you, ions are basically um, atoms or molecules that have an extra electron or a um, uh, a removed electron and they want to come back to equilibrium so they have the correct amount of electrons for their you know outer shells and whatnot so they um they either if you're charging them negatively that means they're getting an extra electron because an electron is a negative uh, charged particle and they're looking for a positive source and uh, they would go to anything that has that positive source and pick up that elect that deposit that electron on that source and the movement created from the uh, the particle or the, uh, the molecule going down creates thrust that lifts the craft up. The, the The main principle behind electrohydrodynamics is that electrons, uh, or the lack of electrons, meaning when you have a positive uh, potential, that's a lack of electrons, gets emitted from sharp objects and gets attracted to round objects. Uh, which is why the lifters usually have a sharp edge and then a rounded edge. Um, I came up with this new design for a lifter, which is basically a piece of aluminum foil that's been shaped in the shape of a bowl. Then you have a rod, usually like a, a straw, plastic straw, and then you put some sharp wires on the top. That's where you feed the high-voltage electricity. But it works either way. You can have the high voltage on the rounded end on the bottom, too. That's That, that will work just fine. Uh, the problem is, is, of course, then if you had that voltage there, it would short out to the ground right below it. So it's it's a little uh, engineering challenge. It's easier to have it on the top. But that that's an easy way to do it. I actually had some kids come over to the, to the lab a couple of times, and they make these little ion craft. Um, takes about 20 minutes to half an hour to make them. And then we uh, bring them into the back of the lab, charge them up to around 50,000 volts, and they all start to fly. Um, it's, it's a pretty pretty cute project, but it's not anti-gravity in any shape or form. Uh, it right. is just uh, electro-hydrodynamics, like we before. 
the B2 Stealth Bomber does use this principle to uh, help out with the thrust. I think they're uh, getting their high voltage potential off of the, um, leading the jet edge. engine. Uh, and the leading edge, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's where they put the uh, high voltage. But the high voltage is coming from the jet engines. There's a way, there's a way to, um, to, to, to turn high heat into high voltage. Um, uh, this is one of uh, Tesla's patents. And then they're able to take that, that high voltage potential that they got for free, you know, sucking off uh, spare energy off of the, uh, the jet engines and uh, place that potential on the leading edge. What that does, high voltage, um, it, it, it acts like two magnets that are, you're trying to press together. They, it repels every, every uh, molecule of air apart from each other. It makes it all expand. So the air that the um, craft is flying through becomes less dense, and there's le there's less of a bow shock uh, for the airplane. Also, you know the the massive potential that's building up there also has a bit of an ion thrust effect, but that is secondary. The real you know the real thing that they're looking for is to reduce the bow shock in the front of the B two, uh, which which is kind of important. But um, yeah, so we started off with the. Uh, with the ion wind stuff, of course, because that was uh, simple. I also uh, checked out the uh, Boyd Bushman effect. Which, um, Boyd Bushman worked for Lockheed, and he uh, he made a couple videos that are widely available on YouTube uh, before he died. And he explained that they discovered this effect that if you put two magnets so uh, with opposing poles, like north to north or south to south, and you force them together and then drop them, they will fall slower than the speed of gravity. Okay, it's an amazing claim. Let's try it out. I, I bought all the components, got this whole uh, te test rig set up. Had was having some trouble with the scale measurements because the scale wouldn't was kept on zeroing out and everything. And uh, I was afraid to actually drop it because the magnets were kind of expensive and heavy. But uh, then I did a little bit more research and found there was a couple of people who already replicated the experiment. It does work. But what do you go from there? Like. Well, the, the point of anti-gravity, or by anti-gravity I mean like however these flying saucers operate, is to take off. We're not looking to fall a little bit slower. So, um, you know, looking forward from there, I couldn't like figure out what the next step would be. So that was kind of a dead end. Uh, the um, the uh, electrohydrodynamics experiment. Yeah, go ahead. I, can I ask you what, uh, how much slower do they fall? I mean, I've heard of those experiments, and I, I sympathize with you not wanting to bust the magnets, but I might have put some uh, yoga mats on the floor or something. Uh, I, it's the shock that causes the effect, or is it the simple juxtaposition of the fields? Uh, what I think is happening is, is the, uh, you're, you're repolarizing space as it falls, very rapidly because uh, the, the field lines that come out of the magnet when they're forced together like that extend outward pretty far and uh they're pretty intense there's high flux meaning there's high change in the magnetic field lines as it moves through space essentially what you're doing is creating a linear uh, motor um which theoretically should work to produce some thrust if you can create a linear motor with a high enough uh, output. And by a linear motor, I mean motors sure. normally spin 
electromagnetic fields in a circle, and then there's the central hub that follows those uh, magnetic field lines. Or if you have outboard, it's the other way around. You have the, the magnet, magnetic field lines coming in from the center, and then the magnets on the outside are, are following it. But that's essentially what, a, what, what an electric motor is, or an AC motor. Uh, with a linear motor, you're taking that entire thing and straightening it out, and you have magnetic field lines that are just you know, looping down in, or in one direction through that uh through your rig and that's what a rail gun is or an accelerator uh, a particle accelerator is essentially just a linear motor with a lot of power to it hey mark i, um, I have on my youtube channel a, a link to a video and i can't think of the guy's name but this is old guy he's been in classified stuff and so forth and he's demonstrating he, he's demonstrating what he calls a cell it looks like a, it looks like a elongated lodgings um, uh, that's been sliced in half. So the bottom half of it, he spins it in one direction, and it spins and spins and spins and slows down. He spins it counterclockwise, and it goes around like a turn and a half, shutters and stops and starts to go back the opposite direction, real slow. And he's telling, explain that. And the guy's saying, is that because of the Earth's rotation? And he says, they don't know because it's violating, um, you know, that law that says, uh, what was it, Newton's law? It says uh, uh, object in motion stays in motion unless and acted upon by a an external force. But yet... <clears throat> Here, this. Oh yeah, so I saw those, those toys are. Yeah, I've seen them on uh, Edmund Scientific. That, that's basically a. Um, that's an effect of the shape of the object. It, it kind of looks like a uh, a lopsided pill, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. I know that, he, that that works off of the geometry of the object. When you spin it in one direction, it, it sort of raises up a little bit, and then um, when it you know, slows down because of resistance. It now wants to turn in the other direction or to get into its lower spin um, environment because it has it has two points. It has two uh, fulcrum points. You know, for the center. That's not anything mysterious at all. Okay. Um, well, I, you could three D you could three D print those too. It's, it's all about the shape, and you got to have a really smooth surface for that to work. Well, what I was trying to was pointing out is that he did the experiment that you just talked about of jamming the two magnets together, the high-gauss magnets, putting a bolt through them and bolting them together so they don't repel, so they're stuck. And he dropped them, and he had students standing down at the bottom, and he said, pick up the one that hits the ground first uh, and, and, and hand it to me after I've dropped them. And he said that every time it would be the one that didn't have the magnets in, in it because he put them in some kind of container that they both look like big rocks or something, but he dropped them simultaneously. And the one with the opposing magnets was the last one to fall, which like you said, it caused it to drop slowly. So he, right. he talks exactly, he talks about exactly what you just said about opposing magnets. So I found that was very interesting that, uh, you had that kind of yeah, technology. I mean, Theoretically, it should work. It's because um, it, spa empty space is not truly empty. There's there's something that's called the uh, the permittivity and permeability of space time, and it's a value that doesn't equal zero. And by permittivity and permeability, we're talking about uh, the dielectric strength 
or the amount of um, voltage that can be contained in empty space before it arcs over. So uh, the the uh, resistance of space-time is not infinite. Also, the uh, reluctance of space-time, meaning the uh, the magnetic uh, per um, permeability of space-time is not zero as well. There's, there's a certain amount of... Um, magnetic flux that can be uh, induced in space-time and uh, this is what basically gives us the speed of light is those two values um, the, the speed of light isn't really about light it's more about the speed of inductance inside space-time and when you change uh, the orientation the spin orientation of you know, these flux lines very rapidly as the magnets are falling through space you're dragging space-time along with it, in a sense, slowing, slowing its fall. Um, and it, it's it's expected to, you know, uh, even according to uh, modern physics, they would expect something like that to happen. Uh, although it would be a very small effect. And uh, getting back to uh, the other gentleman's uh, question, we're talking about uh, one to maybe two percent uh, difference not even it's it's a pretty small but slightly noticeable effect if you dropped it from a high enough distance i'm dealing with pretty powerful magnets so i was afraid to uh go and sacrifice them like that if i included a, a rope or something to catch it that would probably uh interfere with the test measurements because you're dealing with such a small uh, number um, uh, Mark, you weren't doing it in a vacuum. Did you try doing it in a liquid? You could you could slow the whole process down. Yeah, but if you're doing it in a liquid, then then you uh, then you're dealing with the you know the inductance of the liquid. I mean, if you took uh, to, uh, a, a, a changing magnetic field and put it next to a liquid, the liquid would start to spin, unless it was you know had almost no uh, conductivity. Liquids are affected by magnetic fields, uh, especially mercury. Uh, we, we did an experiment once where we had a vial of mercury here in the lab and uh, spun a, a field around it using a little Dremel, and oh, the, the mercury was spinning pretty fast. Um, so, oh, sure. Those, yeah, yeah, those those, effect, those effects uh, are real. Um, they are expected. They're, they're field effects. You're talking about interacting with the field around the craft. Okay. To create, to create. okay, I'm still digesting the um, uh, inductance of um, the void uh, that you were talking about. Got to be careful that there's. We need a nerd alert button. Got to. You have to define terms <laughs> as you go along oh, so okay. that people yeah. don't let's, get lost. Let's break it down. Yeah. Why don't you tell me? Yeah. Do. Okay. So. I'm sorry. When we're talking about uh, electricity, there's two components. There's there's the voltage, which is basically your electron potential. Think of that as water pressure. Then when, when an electron passes through uh, a conductor, it doesn't go through it straight. There's something called an electron drift velocity, which is basically yes. um, the, the electron, when it's passing through the object, you know, can come in and it can move pretty freaking slowly like through copper even uh with a dc current um at a pretty high amperage the electron is moving about at walking speed it's moving very slowly through a copper inductor 
if you were to do it through uh, a superconductor, it'd be moving at tens of thousands of miles per second. It'd be moving very quickly. If uh, the electron is moving through, uh, you know, empty space, it's moving at the speed of light. But uh, there's, or almost the speed of light. Yeah, there, so there's the electron drift velocity, and there's also the electron is moving through the object in a spiraling fashion. Um, that creates um, you know, spin orientation because it's all spinning in the same direction and direction it's moving to the right. Um, that spin orientation is what we know of as electromagnetism. Magnetism is spin orientation of electrons. Um, now the magnetic field permeates outward in the shape of a donut. It goes like up and around. So this is just for a standard magnetic field. You get more more complex ones. Um, and anything that's in that donut shape will try to orient itself with the spin orientation of the electron. Um, and uh, it, that, in a nutshell, is what we're talking about. So the, the electron is, is a, um, a force that's bouncing in and out of the space-time, uh, the space-time around it. So the space-time or the ether that's around that, that, that we're living in is basically the carrier for the electromagnetic wave. So when you have two magnets uh, in, in opposition to each other, north to north, the reason why they're opposing each other is because they're both they both have spin orientations in the same direction, but because they're facing each other, they're, uh, the, the point at which that spin orientation is dictated is coming from the opposite direction. It's sort of like having two clocks. You put them in opposition, you'll see the, the second hands are spinning in the other direction, right? That's because right. the one side, yeah. And when they're in opposition, they don't want to, you know, the, the, those fields don't want to combine. They're fighting each other. That's why you have, that's why the magnets oppose each other. When they're, when they're both facing in the same direction, where the, where it'll be south to north, then the magnetic fields, the spin orientations are in the same direction. They want to combine together in order to get to their lowest energy state, which is an important important concept in physics everything wants to get to its lowest energy state well why would it want to do that that's just the law of nature everything wants to go to its lowest energy state you want to hear my uneducated version of why magnets do what they do why the homopolar effect takes place that uh, faraday discovered uh I think there is an internal current running in the magnets once the material aligns. It's not just a spin of the electrons. There is a current. When you put that disk conductor on that magnet, that disk magnet, and you spin it all as one unit, that current walks up into that disk through some kind of skin effect. And now you can tap directly into it from the center and the, and the edge. That's your plus and minus. And now you're tapped directly into that high current that's flowing inside the magnet in this hyperdimensional realm, and that's what gives us the high current and the low voltages to give us the homopolar effect. And that's why Bruce De Palma's uh, end machine was 500% efficient because it was tapped directly into the magnets. He was just using a small amount of energy to move it into the conductor so he could pull it out and tap directly into that, that current. And we know that the current does the work. So that's my... Uh, uneducated version of what's taking place. Okay, so uh, we're oh, coming up. Yeah. We're coming up on the uh, break, so that's why I kind of broke in. So I'm like, uh, 
maybe 30 seconds out from actually going to break. Uh, is there anything that you want to talk about real quick um, or, or set us up for before we come back from break? Uh, we'll definitely uh, ask the viewers, uh, listeners, to uh, check out uh, the terms uh, current and uh, amperage and voltage. Um, and you'll see something called the babble in science where uh, one, what, what means one thing to one person can mean something to somebody else, something different to somebody else. So we'll, we'll get into that after the break. Okay. And you're listening to the other side of midnight and I'm hosting Keith Morgan and our guest is uh, Mark Sokol and we're going to be talking about anti-gravity. And when we come back, we will pick up where we left off and hopefully it will be a really good show tonight. that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception at a, on a wide scale. Is because it's the banks at the core and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not depositor money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet. Because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Annetta, and Kinthea. 
Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. I'm Keith Morgan, and I'm sitting in for Richard C. Hoagland tonight. Our guest is Mark Sokol, and we're having a great conversation about anti-gravity and a whole bunch of things uh, wrapped up in between. So, Mark, you want to pick up where you left off? Yes, we were talking about uh, electrical currents. Um, so... I've actually had this conversation before with other uh, physicists in the field. Um, depending on how you define electrical current, you can make the uh, uh, you can claim that a magnet does have a current running through it, or that could also not be claimed. Depends on how you define an electrical current. Um, but the definition on Wikipedia is that it's a um, uh, an electrical current is a stream of charged particles, such as electrons or ions, moving through an electric con- electrical conductor or space. While there are uh, electro- uh, charged uh, particles, such as electrons, moving through uh, objects without any voltage being applied to them, such as you look at pyrolytic graphite, that has a very high electron drift velocity, the electrons are moving around inside the material um, at very high rates of speed without any actual voltage being applied to it. Um, this is called the electron drift velocity, and uh, they have a very high one at, at room temperature. Um, if you can somehow tap into that and make that a coherent current, then you might be able to uh, create a thermoelectric converter, which is something that would cool down as it releases energy, which would solve the world's electric um, energy crisis, something we talked about before the show. Um, there's a couple other ways to, uh, to, to look at that problem. But basically, electrons moving through a conductor are, is how we define a current. Now, electrons are always spinning around at the speed of light around in the different bands around the atoms. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about electron jumping from atom to atom or from molecule to molecule within the, uh, the material, and that's what creates the current. Now, the, the way we're reading the current is we're seeing the magnetic field lines that are created uh, by the movement of the electron. So the, the electron, when it goes from atom to atom, it's sort of spinning around like a spiral. That creates a spin orientation for the electron or a magnetic moment or ma- magnetic direction. When you have a magnetic field, what you're really dealing with is spin orientation of the electron field. Um, the stronger the field, the more the better oriented it is. Uh, the weaker the field, the less oriented it is, the less coherent it is. And theoretically, there should be an upper limit to which magnetic fields can't get any stronger because it's perfectly oriented. You follow so far? Yep. I did have electronics in high school, and my father was a master electrician. And uh, I did work for ABC News for 30 years as an electronics technician. So I understand everything you're talking about. Ohm's Law, Maxwell, all of those guys. Yeah, I got it. But it's our audience that we have to educate on this. So uh, Exactly. I just want to make sure, make sure that I'm, I'm breaking it down to 
you know, the simplest level possible. Have you heard of rotational magnetic fields? Uh, it's a third form of electricity. That's used induction for induction, right? Or just something different than I'm... Well, it's a form of electricity. Like, if you were to have magnets moving through space uh, with um, orientations push, uh, pointing outward, uh, you would create a, um, a spinning magnetic field in space-time that cannot be shielded against. No Faraday cage, no lead, no nothing can, can shield against it. Um, it's also possible to affect objects that are not magnetic in nature, like plastics and wood can actually be affected by these types of fields. Does this have uh, something to do with the Hutchison effect? No, the Hutchison effect is, uh, involves using uh, high voltage mixed with microwaves to, uh, to reach some uh, resonance points. Uh, we're, we're actually in contact with John Hutchinson, but he's, um, uh, he's, he's a very interesting, or he or she, I might add, is a very interesting uh, figure that, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to connect with. Uh, but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the Hutchinson effect in a, in a little bit. But, um, yeah, essentially the way, the way I look at uh, electric fields or uh a magnetic field is a spin orientation of the electrons. So when we're dealing with a device like the, the gravitator, which we were talking about earlier, uh, which is a parallel plate capacitor that uh, T. Townsend Brown claimed would uh, move in the direction of the positive charge, maintain that position for a little bit, and then it would slowly fall back to the center because it was hanging on a, um, hanging on a, on a rope or something like that. And this is with the charge maintained, and he said there was no ion wind effect uh, going on there. Uh, I tried to replicate this experiment. At first, we did see effects, but it turns out they were electrostatic in nature, uh, electrostatic repulsion we were dealing with. We had to uh, eliminate certain wires and reorient the experiment. Uh, I did get it to a point where at around 60,000 volts with using a... Um, an incense stick to measure ion flow to see if there's any wind. We were able to see that there was no wind flow. Uh, we did not see any effect uh, once we were able to correct for all the, uh, the issues. But there was a couple things we didn't do wrong, didn't do uh, right, and I've only learned that they were relevant uh, recently um, through, uh, through, through my work with, uh, APEC, uh, the alternative propulsion engineering conference and learning what other teams that are working with DARPA and, uh, NASA, you know, other, other teams were working on. It turns out that, uh, T. Townsend Brown was using, uh, litharge or lead oxide powder inside his dielectric material in between the plates. And the reason why that was important is because, when you have um, a static electric field that's on a plate, it's different than if you have the static electric field in contained inside the material from every single little uh, atom of lead oxide that's contained around, you know, it's contained in wax. It's, it's very different when it's contained inside the material versus when it's on the, uh, just on the surface of the plate. And that may have contributed to the effect. I, I have seen other people replicate the experiment and were able to see some effect. And this is what's known as the Byfield-Brown effect. People uh, 
there's a big misnomer out there that the, uh, the ion lifter devices are bifold Brown effect. No, that's not true. The only time that bifold was ever mentioned in a patent was uh, the patent number 300-311. Uh, it's a British patent where um, Tate Townsend Brown was actually working with bifold. And uh, that was with the, uh, the gravitator experiment. All the, all the later stuff that came, you know, with the... Uh, ion lifters and the the, the large discs um, that he experimented with in France, those came much later. Those are not bifilled brown. So uh, that's where that experiment left off. I also tried another version of it uh, using slanted sawtooth waves. Now, you might probably heard a lot about those from Tom Valone, if you've ever had them on from Integrity Research. Uh, basically, the idea is to have a waveform that goes up rapidly and then falls down slowly. Um, uh, I came up with this idea looking at the Podkalov impulse, gravity impulse experiment, which uh, uh, Eugene Podkalov claimed that he took a superconducting disc and charged it up rapidly using a Marx generator, which is basically a lightning bolt machine. And uh, charge it up to like millions of volts and uh, had it discharged through a vacuum chamber to uh, an object that would have very slow electron drift velocity, such as silver or copper. And uh, in the process, he created an impulse that was gravitational in nature, meaning it would go through every, uh, every object in its path. It was laser-like. Um, it's... It, it, did not weaken in any uh, measurable way for as far as they can measure it. Um, and most importantly, every time they would multiply, they would, uh, they, they would uh, double the voltage of the impulse, the, uh, of the electrical impulse, the gravitational impulse's uh, output would go up tenfold. So when you have an effect like that, where it's times two and you're getting times 10 out, you're obviously able to uh, create an effect off of that. Because if you, if you were to pulse it faster in one direction than the other, there would be a net effect in one direction. Are you fa- it would be like pulse, but... Are, are you familiar with uh, John Searle and the Searle generator? Oh, I'm very familiar with John Searle and the Searle generator. Okay. I have... Uh, Talked to uh, Jason Verbelli and uh, what's his name? I actually Russell Anderson. I actually interviewed him uh, last weekend at uh, Tesla Tech in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. We were talking about the Soul Generator in great detail. Um, my personal belief is that the Soul Effect Generator is a hoax. Um, I, I, I don't believe uh, you know. I don't believe it at the moment. I'm I'm pretty skeptical about stuff like that because the amount of money that's been poured into it, uh, both here in the U.S. and the the Russians spent a lot of money on it as well. They did not see uh, the kind of effects that were uh, that were claimed by John Searle. Um, uh, John claimed that uh, as a teenager working in his uh, dad's uh, mechanic shop, he was able to build this device with. Uh, Lots of very complex magnetic fields and uh, 
every time you talk about it, the the, uh, the the manufacturing, the engineering just gets more and more complex. Uh, from what I understand, he built this build when it. he was working for a, a company to build generators, and he was self-taught, and he used the what he called the the law of the squares to actually put this together. And if those magnets in the cylinders that are holding themselves just above the copper rings are going around at the speed that they're going, shouldn't inertia make those things fly away? Or you're saying that's not what's happening here. This, this, these magnets rollers that are going around the copper ring are not really doing that? Well, just just from the perspective of, uh, he, he claims that he built it while he was a teenager working in, I, I thought it was his uh, his father's shop, but you're telling me he was working at a... Uh, a, a generator you know, factory that, 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 that built generators. Yeah, that, 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 that could be true. But still, he was able to build this device and get it to work uh, back then, and he claims that it, uh, it flew through the ceiling and uh, up into space, and he can never find it again. And no, it, you know, it, it, it didn't fly through the ceiling. He was sitting at the kitchen table where his uh, landlady was there in the kitchen, and it went into this super cool effect because when you pull more energy out of it, it doesn't get hot. It gets cooler, and it gets to a superconductive point where then it rose up and got stuck on the ceiling, and when he went to pull it down, his hands virtually almost froze to it, until he shut it down and then but when he had it outside and he was doing this stuff then he created what he called the levity disc and then it would go off into space someplace uh, until he would learn how to control it and then he set up some kind of radio control he sent one around the world using uh, radio relays uh, yeah yeah. I mean, it, he's yeah. got a book I, I read the book and I think he's telling the truth. It's just we're not at a point to be able to accept what he's telling us. But if his technology comes out, it's going to be a game changer in terms of not only anti-gravity, but also in terms of energy generation. And it's not a free energy device. Yes. It's not a free energy no, device. No, it's a thermoelectric converter. Yeah, if, if that is true of it getting cold, that is very, very exciting because uh, if you're able to convert heat directly into electricity, that is the, that, that is the uh, solution that will solve our energy crisis. Imagine turning on your air conditioner in the summer, and instead of uh, it sucking energy out of the grid, you're actually pumping energy into the grid. You know, and during the winter, you'd have these energy plants on the, on the shore cooling off the ocean water. That would uh, solve the, the world's energy problem once and for all if we had such a device. Um, and there are, you know, theoretical concepts or, or very uh, uh, very cutting-edge uh, experiments that have shown that it is possible using a, uh, a two-diode system Did you know that, did, what is essentially did you, the, the did Maxwell's you, demon. Okay. Did you know that there's at least three guys who have room temperature superconductors at 57 degrees Fahrenheit, not minus 57 or 70 minus 70, 57 degrees Fahrenheit, superconductive. And they have found out that graphene, which is a one atom thick layer of graphite, uh, that is superconductive at superconductive temperatures of minus 70 or whatever. 
But if you take a second graphene layer and you lay it over top of the first graphene layer, but you offset it by just a little bit on degrees, that takes the temperature coefficient up even higher from like minus 70 up to minus 50. You put a third layer on it, it goes up even higher. So these three guys that I'm still researching and trying to find, they have superconductive devices that are at room temperature of 57 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, there's also the uh, the University of Alb uh, not of Albany of Rochester recently created room temperature but at very high uh, pressures. Yeah, these... a room temperature superconductor. That was a major uh, that was a major discovery just recently uh -huh. in the past couple of months. Um, there's also a claim that uh, monoatomic or very thin layers of bismuth uh, are superconducting. The thing about bismuth is the strongest uh, diamagnetic material. And for those who don't know, uh, diamagnetism is the effect where you apply a magnetic field, you have an equal, uh, you have an opposing magnetic field created inside the material. The reason for this is that the electron drift velocity inside the material is higher than the magnetic field spin rate. So when, when the spin orientation happens, it actually opposes that magnetic field. Um, so the bismuth is the strongest naturally occurring material uh, for diamagnetism. And the, the only known usage for bismuth at the current time is in peptobismol, uh, or which we take for an upset stomach. Uh, bismuth is also pretty rare. It's about two times as common as gold. Um, so if we found any reason to use bismuth in an anti-gravity uh, craft, the uh, the price of bismuth would probably shoot up at the rate that uh, Bitcoin has. It would be like buying Bitcoin at $2. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, bismuth is, is an interesting thing to look at. We tried creating those uh, really thin layers of bismuth. The, the issue is, is you, you got to do that in a vapor deposition cham chamber. Bismuth is a very difficult material to work with, which is why there's almost no use for it. Very difficult material to work with. It creates crystals very quickly. The crystals break this uh, superconducting effect um, if, if it truly exists in the first place. So um, we're, we're still unsure whether that's true or not. But, but it does, um, it does any, get your antacids down in your stomach, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is kind of good at, uh, you know, working at your antacids and, and all that. I'm sure there's they could find some other material to do that if if it turns out that, that bismuth had some other use. But um, that, that's, a, that's another material to look at. Of course, pyrolytic graphite is even more diamagnetic uh, than bismuth. That is not a naturally occurring material. Um, it, it Actually, it could happen uh, naturally near like a uh, thermal thermal uh, thermal event like a geyser or something like that if you had if you had some uh graphite near a geyser you might end up with uh pyrolytic graphite but it's not something that's commonly found in nature um that is actually diamagnetic enough to float and um th there's also a lot of materials that are very close to uh a to superconducting at plasma levels, meaning at very hot levels. Like you look at the plasma of mercury, that is pretty darn close to being superconducting. Um, that 
what we found with uh, at least what uh, Podkinov claimed with his uh, superconducting uh, disk experiments he was using, I think he was using YCBOs or yttrium barium copper oxides, um, that the uh, superconductor was not actually necessary. It was, uh, it, it improved the effect slightly, but uh, using materials like pyrolytic graphite, you can get the same effect uh, at room temperature. It's all about how, how the electron is moving around and uh think of it this way einstein told us that the theory of relativity that objects that are moving at, at light speed have these different uh, effects have these rel relativistic effects um we're made out of objects that are moving at light speed they're just spinning around in circles the electrons are spinning around essentially at light speed around the atom so if you can manipulate those in certain ways you can you know, use relativity um, to push or pull against space-time. You, you can use those effects to, to have something to grab onto in order to, uh, to move forward, which is uh, something that uh, Richard Ben Derrick is working on uh, on a DARPA grant right now. Um, there's a company called Quantum Magnetics, and uh, they're, pro they're actually promoting their... Um, uh, electric motor and a generator and the electro electric motor is powered from these graphite plates that have some electrode uh, electrolyte in between the two sandwich plates and they charge themselves up and deliver like five or six amps um and if you give them like four seconds they'll charge back up so they set it up so that they feed a supercapacitor bank or ultracapacitor bank to help take the load off the plates and they stack the plates I think in par parallel or series to get enough current and voltage to be able to um, run the motor and they pulse the motor seven seconds on four seconds off seven seconds on seven four seconds off and these plates continuously provide power and they're not getting charged up they're just charging themselves up. And I'm wondering, have you heard of that, or have you seen this, this company doing this? Um, no, I'm, we, we try to keep a distance from the, uh, the free energy folk, uh, although what you're talking about sounds like it might be a thermoelectric converter. Uh, I hope that it is. Um, the thing is, is that that field has had so many... Uh, uh, hoaxsters and, uh, and charlatans. charlatans that, yeah, yeah I've met I've met a few of them. The thing is, is that every uh, venture capitalist or many venture capitalists have a free energy fund. They got they got that you know the zero point energy fund. They got the money. You know they're interested in investing. They want to figure out that problem. Not many of them have a UFO fund. You know they're not looking to uh, figure out anti gravity. Um, I guess it's just too far-fetched for them or something. So th there's a lot of incentive to people to, uh, to try and you know, get into that field and make some money. Um, the thing is, is that every time you look, we've looked at something like that, you look at it deeper and deeper, and you eventually find that uh, there, there, there's some trick involved there. They're fooling the meter. You know, the, the, the energy's coming from somewhere else. Um, and the easiest person to fool is yourself. So don't, don't think just cause the guy is so sincere, you know, he, he's telling the truth. He might be telling the truth that he thinks is true, but, um, 
we've never we've never seen true uh, free energy that really that that really shook our pants off. Um, but anyways, moving moving back to uh, anti gravity or tr- trying to figure out how these flying saucers operate. So we tried the uh, the gravitator uh, experiment. The next thing I wanted to try was the uh, the slanted sawtooth wave uh, version of it. Not very easy to create a, sl- a slanted sawtooth wave. Uh, there, there are no uh, uh, amplifiers that you know off the shelf can create those kind of effects. Um, one thing I wanted to, to do was to use a uh, uh, a vacuum tube, control it via fiber optics, and had just a high voltage uh, DC source, and then you'd be pulsing that DC source into something that has some sort of uh, resistor or something like that that can uh, drop the voltage so you get be able to put in a subsequent pulse. And uh, I set it up. It worked. The, uh, the scale that I was using to measure any weight loss went haywire and started showing me like 70 grams of weight loss. I don't trust the numbers on that scale because they were all over the place. Also, I found out later that the um, uh, the vacuum tubes that I was using had a maximum power output of just a couple watts. So uh, I, I went back to the drawing board and searched online for a better uh, vacuum tube, and uh, I found that Berkeley Labs Linear Accelerator was uh, being decommissioned, and they were selling the vacuum tubes online, and those had a power output of 186 megawatt impulse. So... Um, picked up a couple of those and uh got them wired up uh, so we're just about ready to try that impulse version of the gravitator experiment which would uh possibly show us some effect um and, and these would all be thrust later on we'll get into uh the inertial mass uh, dampening devices with the alzavon experiment which is something that i'm knee deep in working on right now um that that's a very exciting experiment that uh, the government has looked into and uh, it's something that can really explain how these flying saucers operate and get that going. Okay. Uh, we're about uh, 30 seconds out from our break. So um, when we come back, we'll pick up from, from there and just try to stick on the topic of anti-gravity. But all of it comes together with a lot of other strange things that are coming out now like the quantum glass battery yes. and so forth. It, it's somehow all related. So just, let's pick up where we left off when we come back, okay? All right. So you guys, we're on the other side of midnight, and our guest is Mark Sokol. I'm your host, Keith Morgan, in place of your regular guest, Richard C. Hoagland. And we'll be back after the break, and I'm hoping you're enjoying this show because I am having a great time. For listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only 
Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.